Well, there are, are a few psalms, I think, that have as nice a ring to them as Psalm 23. It's probably for that reason that you memorize it. Particularly coming off the hills of Psalm 22. You remember the beginning of Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 23 has a, a rather nice ring to it, I think. Psalm 23, in contrast to Psalm 22, it gives a lot of comfort. Instead of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It starts, the Lord is my shepherd. If you're going to put one of those verses on your wall in your house, it's probably going to be Psalm 23 and not Psalm 22. Can you imagine someone having, why are you so far from saving me? in a really cool font above their fireplace. Probably wouldn't look as nice. Psalm 23 gives us warm, fuzzy feelings for a few reasons. One, there seems to be little required of us in the text. Let's be honest. When we read it, it just makes a whole bunch of statements of fact about the Lord. It's a lot of promises, and it seems to require nothing of me, which is great. It's mercifully short, and it's easy to understand. It's basically all the things we hope from a Sunday sermon, right? But do we actually understand it? That's a different matter entirely. What does it mean exactly that the Lord is my shepherd? Well, David clarifies it in verse 2 when he says, He makes me lie down. And then he says, he leads me twice. So simply put, David calls the Lord his shepherd, and by that, he means specifically the Lord is my leader. He's guiding me, he leads me, he shepherds me. But the title shepherd is meant to convey the kind of leader he is. What sort of disposition does this leader have? It is one of a shepherd. So David, in this psalm, is celebrating the Lord's leadership of him who currently sits as the leader of Israel at the time he writes this. What's particularly odd about our love of this chapter, which I think most of us would probably say, we grew up, at least those of us that grew up in the church, probably grew up hearing this psalm read a lot, probably forced to memorize What's particularly odd about our love for this chapter is that it celebrates all the ways in which the Lord leads us, which, don't get me wrong, are incredibly comforting, but they're comforting if and only if you are willing to fully submit to the Lord's leadership over you. Now, if experience has taught me one thing, it's that we as people as fallen people, don't really like to be told what to do. Can I just, is this a safe space? Can I just say that? I'm including myself in that, but we typically don't like to be told what to do. So if we come into this passage entrusting ourselves to the Lord's leadership, then this chapter brings in unbelievable comfort. But if, however... We come in not liking being told what to do and despising the Lord's leadership, then perhaps this psalm should bring us more worry than comfort. 
There are two metaphors that David uses in this psalm for leadership, his leadership over us. And the first is as a shepherd, and the second one is as a host. And we're going to be looking at each of these separately, the shepherd and the host, to see what kind of leader he is. But not just merely what kind of leader he is. I think we could easily read this psalm and we could walk away with understanding the leadership of the Lord, close our Bibles and go home. But it should really beg us to ask the questions of ourselves. What kind of followers are we? I don't know about you, but the Lord is my shepherd and sometimes I question what kind of sheep I am. Sometimes I feel a little bit like this sheep here. (laughs) Just in case you missed it, there's going to be a slow-mo retake of that. All right, you can move. <laughs> you pulled out of the ditch and then just you just go right back in the ditch. Is that the kind of follower you are? First, let's look at the Lord as shepherd. In the previous psalm, David uh uh, sorry, in the previous Psalms, David has, has described the Lord in a lot of different ways. He's, he's called Him a king. He's called Him a deliverer. He has called Him a rock. He's even called Him a shield. But if you'll notice, at the beginning of this Psalm, he gets intensely more personal than that. He's not just a shield. He now becomes my shepherd. Not just a shepherd, he is my shepherd. And that puts this psalm in a slightly different context, not because it changes who the Lord is necessarily, but perhaps it changes how we think about him. He's not just a rock, a fortress, a savior, but he's my rock, he's my fortress, he's my savior, he's my leader, he is my shepherd. Let's not forget that these psalms are meant to be sung. David is writing a song that he is singing for himself. And he is expecting you to be able to sing that same psalm. That he is my shepherd. Then David proceeds to show us how the Lord's benevolent leadership is really shown to us. And he shows us this in a, a few ways. First, he says that he provides. That's clear from the get-go. He says He provides. That's how we know He is leading us, is He provides for us. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, and He says then, I have everything that I could possibly ever need. He provides everything that I currently have, or anything that I could possibly ever need. Now, I would venture a guess that when we talk about the Lord's provision, particularly as Americans, the realities of that is almost entirely lost on us. Some of you have lunch cooking in the crock pot at home. All of us in here have some idea what we're going to do for lunch. 
And if we don't have an idea what we're going to do for lunch, we're not really worried about it. Although you might be by the end of the sermon, I don't know. After lunch, we have pantries and refrigerators full of food. And when that runs out, we either go buy more food at the, res- at, at the grocery store or we go to restaurants and we pay way too much for food that we could cook at home. Simply because we have enough in abundance in our bank accounts to be able to pay for it. Even the poorest among us in this country are wealthy by the world's standards. We don't know the kind of poor that we find in the farthest reaches of India or in Africa where there are children and adults that are literally starving every single day. The Christians in India and Africa know exactly what it means to ask the Lord for daily bread and to fret over whether or not He is actually going to provide it. When is the last time you actually prayed that the Lord would provide your food for the day? He provides. But further, He actually seeks good things that are for my benefit. That's what He says here. He says, He makes me lie down. And it goes without saying that the green pastures and the still waters are obviously desirable areas of rest, of food, and of water for sheep. But the the sense of what's being said here is a little bit lost on the English translations. It has the sense of the shepherd seeking out the green pastures and seeking out the still waters for his flock. In other words, he is out front of the flock and leading them in the direction of green pastures and still waters that he is in the process of seeking out. So it might be felt he seeks out desirable places for me. He seeks out green pastures. He seeks out still waters. This is the same kind of provision that we see in James 1, 17-18. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits among His creatures. This is the point of His provision. He provides what is good for you. Not necessarily everything that you want, mind you. He provides what is good for you. How do I know that it's good for me? He provided it. That's how you know it's good for you. Normally the meals at our house are selected by my wife and me. We tell our kids what they're going to eat. This is what's good for you. Eat those things on your plate. The exception are birthdays. Today is both my son's birthday. Born on the same day, two, day, two, two years apart. So they get to choose the menu. The menu today is pancakes, Brownies, cake, and ice cream. (laughs) Waffles were in there, but we had to scrap something. (laughs) It's basically cake in all of its many forms, along with 
ice cream for dessert. (laughs) On any given day, three-fifths of my house wants cake for dinner. And four-fifths when Andrea caves, which is not too difficult. (laughs) But that's not what's good for them. Now, if you were to ask me, I would never pick cancer. All my loved ones would live forever. They would never die. And of course, we'd never live in poverty. But I'd die a miserable wretch. Because as it turns out, godly character in a fallen world is forged in the fires of adversity. The Lord knows what's good for me, even when I don't. I want brownies and cake and ice cream. Though He knows what's good for me. That's how we come to trust in His provision. He provides, David says. But the second aspect of His leadership is that He forgives and sanctifies So he provides, but he also forgives and sanctifies as our leader. David says in verse 3, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. And by restores my soul, he means that the shepherd turns the hearts of the flock back to him. At the point when we begin to wander, he turns the hearts of the flock back to him, and he receives them. Now this is potentially the best news For us who are prone to wander, which is all of us in this room, prone to wander, this is particularly comforting for us. God is saying that His straying sheep, He welcomes back in the fold, but not only does He welcome them, He also turns their hearts back to Him. Jeremiah 50 verse 6 says this, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. Jeremiah 50 verse 19. This is just a few verses later. I will restore Israel to his pasture, and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan, and his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. He restores his sheep. And specifically, He has done that already for us in redemption history by purchasing our redemption on the cross of Christ. Now, as much as I want you to read Psalm 23 and be comforted by the words that are found there, you must understand that this psalm is only applicable to the Christian. The only way it can be read and applied truly to your life is as a Christian. Jesus actually, in John, defines His sheep. In John 10, 27, He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. What He's saying is that those who believe, those who are truly Christians... Are the, are, the, are the ones who believe not only that Christ has come to suffer the wrath of God on our behalf, that He was buried and that He rose again on the third day, 
but it's also those who are in full submission to Him and are seeking every day to live by His words and who believe that there is no salvation found outside of Jesus Christ. If that's not you, and you're a shepherdless sheep, you're wandering around in the field, and perhaps you've followed the flock for a long time, coming to church and whatever, having some sort of loose association with His church. But I'm here to tell you, you can come into the fold We were all at one point just as you are. Equally lost. And sometimes we are prone to wander. But you can come into the fold through repentance and faith. Confess your sins to Him and turn from them. What's stopping you? What really is stopping you from confessing your sins to Him, owning them? to Him, turning from them and coming into the fold and celebrating newness of life found only in Christ, where in Him only can you find rest. But He doesn't just restore their souls. He leads His sheep in paths of righteousness. In other words, by the power of His Holy Spirit, He is keeping His sheep in the fold by enabling them to walk the paths of righteousness. In other words, doing what is pleasing to Him. Doing the kinds of works that are pleasing to Him. Paul tells us in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But why does He do this? Is it so that you can have a good life? Is it so that you can feel His blessings? Why does He take this kind of care for His sheep? Is it so that we can come to Psalm 23 and get warm, fuzzy feelings? That's not what David says. David says that he doesn't do it merely for my benefit. He does it for the sake of his own name. Now, believe it or not, that's good news for you and me. That he does it for the sake of his own name. First, the reason... That that's good news for us, that he does it for the sake of his own name, and we don't want him to do it merely for our benefit. We want him to do it for the sake of his own name. The reason we want him to do it for the sake of his own name is because he is prideful about his own name, he is jealous for his own name, and he will not sit idly by while his own name is tarnished. The Bible tells us this. Ezekiel 36, 21-23 says, But I had concern, this is God speaking, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, 
It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. What's coming to Israel is punishment and redemption. What causes the Lord to act? What causes Him to move? Not merely the benefit of Israel. The sake of His own name. His concern for His name above all else. But why is that also comforting to us? It's because He has tied His name to us. That's why it's comforting. Not only did he acts on behalf of his own name, but that he's tied in Christ his own name to us. Meaning that he has a vested interest in our success now. Because his name is tied to us. We are called Christians. We are called by the name of Christ. Therefore, God fights on our behalf. His process of leading us to green pastures and beside still waters and restoring our souls and leading us in paths of righteousness. He does all of those things because we represent His name in this world. And He has a vested interest in making sure the world knows what kind of name He has. We teach our children table manners. And sometimes our kids complain. I don't know about your kids, but sometimes our kids complain about us reinforcing table manners. And we just simply remind them we don't want other people to think you're raised by wolves. Right? I mean, isn't that the purpose of table manners? So that when you go public places, people don't think you're raised by wolves. Should be simple. But parents, to some degree, understand the idea of fighting for and having a vested interest in the protection of your own name. Right? The name Crosswhite, or whatever name it is, at the end of your, your surname, you want to protect, and so you raise your children in that particular way. Well, God is no different, except much greater and much more perfect. He instills righteousness in His children. Why? Because the name Yahweh is righteous. And the world needs to understand that His people are also called to be righteous. And so He moves among us. He corrects us. He guides us for the sake of His own name. But do you understand what this also means? It means that if you're a sheep in his fold, you have a few choices. One, you can submit to his leadership. And as a sheep, you can walk on the path behind the shepherd and follow him to green pastures or beside still waters. Another option is you can sit down in the brambles. That is thorn bushes. The problem with that is, because he is jealous of his own name, 
If he is your shepherd, if you are his sheep, as you sit down in those brambles, he is going to come grab you by the front legs and drag you all the way to the green pastures and the still waters. That's not a great alternative. I'm going to be honest with you. Have you ever been dragged through brambles? Because the Lord is jealous for His own name, He will discipline His own. But there's some fear here too. Because there is a third option. And that is, you've been following the flock for some time, but you decide to sit down in the brambles. And as the flock leaves, you sitting in the brambles, no shepherd comes back to get you. It's at that point you realize in the lack of discipline brought to you, in the lack of conviction of sin, that in fact, you don't belong to the shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. He provides, He forgives, He sanctifies. And then last, He goes through pain and death with us. Now, I want you to notice how the things change, how the words change from verses 3 to verse 4, really all the verses prior to verse 4. He goes from, He leads me. In verse 2. And he says the same in verse 3. He leads me. But do you notice the change that happens in verse 4? You are with me. Not he leads me, but you are with me. See, the picture changes from the shepherd being out front, seeking out green pastures and still waters, to now the shepherd being beside those who are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. For as comforting as Psalm 23 is, there's no sugarcoating it in this psalm. Do you notice that? There's no sugarcoating it here. There's identification of sin in your life and in mine. When he says he restores our soul, that's identifying you need restoration. Right? It's calling us sinners, basically. There's correction. He leads us in paths of righteousness. That means he's going to correct us and put us back on paths of righteousness, doesn't it? It means that we're prone to wonder. And, and then there is this valley of the shadow of death, which you and I will absolutely walk through. Now, perhaps it's literal death, which will eventually be true of all of us, or maybe it's one of those really tough times that puts you and your family to the test. But the point that's being made here is that you will go through them, and the shepherd is there with you. He moves from the front of the pack to the middle of the pack, exactly where you are, transferring from the shepherd to my shepherd. Now he's actually coming alongside us, walking alongside us, bringing us through the valley of the shadow of death. If we went around the room, I'm confident that many in here would be able to testify to a time where they went through the fire that was particularly challenging, very difficult, 
and you didn't know if you were going to make it through, and then you get on the other side and you look back at it, and you see the many ways that God had come alongside you and helped you in answer to prayer, in provision, in ways that only He could lead you. And looking back on it, you can see the Lord at work in that situation. It was in that moment where He wasn't distant and unfeeling, but where you felt closer to Him than you ever could have before. Reminded of a friend of mine who went through cancer, breast cancer. It was the kind of breast cancer that is the one that leads to death, the, the one that has all the negative markers. The day that she got the report, it was a bad, bad day. The day she walked out of the hospital in remission was a joyous occasion, but I remember her texting me and saying to me, the thing that I'm worried about is that the last two years I've been closer to the Lord than I've ever been in my life. And I'm worried that now as the cancer has left me, that I'll be prone to wander as well. And it's looking back in remission of cancer that you can see the Lord was actually beside me every step of the way. And I was closer to Him then than I ever have been before. This is what David is personifying here. The shepherd now comes alongside the sheep and leads them through those trying times. But one day it will actually be death. And what will we experience then as Christians but that Jesus the shepherd will come alongside us as only one who has really died and lived to tell about it can do. Come alongside his sheep and be with you in that very moment, which brings us to the last thing for us to consider really briefly, the Lord as host. Where is all this leading? Well, he says it's leading to a table. Sheep don't sit at tables. Okay? The metaphor has changed. The Lord is no longer playing the role of shepherd. He's now a host. And His sheep are playing the role of guests where before the watching world, that is the table of the enemies, before the watching world, the table is set for us. In another parable, the enemies are called goats. The table is set and the cup of wine overflows. It's designed to be blessing. This is the point that all of this is building to. The restoring of the soul, the paths of righteousness, they're all leading to this place right here, which is what? The house of the Lord forever. That's what it's leading to. The house of the Lord forever. I want you to think about, David has already clued us into this before. He's already told us about this. In Psalm 16, 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Here it is. The green pastures, the still waters, is the presence of the Lord to which the shepherd is leading his sheep. He's leading us into his presence. Why? Because as His people, He is jealous for His own name and He will not stop until we enjoy the blessings of eternity with Him forever as it was always meant to be.
this raises the question, not so much about what kind of leader he is, but what sort of follower we are. Are you potentially, right now, in the process of rejecting his leadership? Well, in order to answer that, you might think, well, how do I know how the Lord leads me? How do I know if I'm rejecting his leadership? In order to answer that, we have to consider all of the tangible ways that the Lord is actually leading you. The first is through His Word. That's this. The Bible. He is leading you through His Word. In this... are all of the ways that you can please Him in obedience. He is leading you through His Word. And His Word alone is able to correct you and to reprove you and train you in righteousness. But the question is, are you giving your life to the study of the Word? Are you? If the Lord came here personally, right now, Jesus just, bang, stood here on stage and said, I'm going to have a leadership meeting every single day and I want you, anybody who follows after me, to attend. Would you be there? Do you know what this is? His leadership meeting. Are you there? Are there areas of your life where you find real, legitimate joy in sin? Where you think about ways in which you will be able to sin today? Do you actively plan it? Do you conceive of whole new ways to sin? Are you intrigued by gossip? Is it impossible for you to turn down? When your friend is next to you and they want to share with you that new bit of news, is it impossible for you to resist? What about when you learn that new piece of information? Is it impossible for you not to share it? Perhaps it's impossible for you to turn down the pursuit of money, stockpile of riches. Perhaps greed has consumed you. Are you resisting his leadership through his word? How else does he lead us? He leads us through earthly authorities. Let's work our way from way up high all the way down. Government, bosses at work, Pastors and elders in the church? Do you find ways to subvert the authority whom God has placed over your head? At work, do you find ways of cutting corners around the ways that your boss has instructed you to do things? Do you find ways to undermine him or her simply because you despise this person? 
or perhaps you disagree with the way that they're leading things. If you have an authority over you, which all of us do, do you understand that God has placed that person there? That changes things when you realize that. Because then in submitting to that person, that boss or whomever it is, you're not submitting to that person, you're submitting to the Lord. Not that that person is God, but that that person is placed there by God. How else does he lead us? Through family leaders. Children in this room. All children, right here. Instructed in the word is to obey your parents. That is your duty as a child, is to obey your parents. Parents are going, hit them again. Throw it one more time. Obedience to your parents is the ways that you submit to the Lord inside the house. Parents, are you shepherding as the Lord shepherds? Uh Uh-oh. Are you shepherding as the Lord shepherds? Not withholding good things from your children? Always seeking out the benefit, the blessing of your children? Not withholding discipline from your children? Are you comforting in the valley? Are you doing all of this for the sake of the Lord's name as Jesus the Good Shepherd does? Husbands, are you leading your families in this way? Wives, is submission still a cuss word in your mind? How else does He lead us? Ephesians 5.21 tells us that the church body is also how he leads us. Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We as a church body are leading each other in that way. That we are submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Are you submitting to the Lord by submitting to the other Christians around you? When that Christian confronts you in sin, do you push back? That's not sin. Or do you consider? Here's the point. God's presence among us is personal. He leads us. He is our good shepherd. We need to look no further than in Christ himself to see that he comes alongside us personally to lead us. That much is clear. But you can sense and feel tangible ways in which He is leading you today. By His Word. By leaders that He has placed over you. By people even inside your own family and by your church body. These are tangible means by which He has given you to lead you into green pastures and beside still waters. What happens then when you push back against all of those things? You just sit down in the brambles. We can look at Psalm 23 and we can be comforted by it. 
But if and only if our earnest desire is to submit to the Lord in all the capacities of our life. If not, then we should be a little bit fearful. Because either He's going to discipline us, and because of our rejection of those things, He's going to come alongside us with the rod of correction. Or, in the worst case scenario, no shepherd will come back for you at all. In which case, this whole time, you've been playing games. The choice is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we consider your leadership in our life, that our hearts will be bent in glad submission to you. I pray that you would pull us in Woo us. Help us to understand the ways that you're leading us now. Help us to see the ways in which we just would rather sit down in the bramble bush. Lord, I pray that for all of us in here, that our hearts would be broken to some degree, that we might see our sin and repent from it. And Father, that you would encourage us as well to let us know that the rod of correction is for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.